Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Low Faithful Virgin. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 15th, 2013, the third Sunday in Advent. When I was in Oxford several years ago, every evening I left my study carol and walked down Woodstock Road to the city center and attended the Evensong services at Maudlin College. I loved so many things about those 30 minutes of worship, the peace and quiet, the architecture, the history of Maudlin College, which was founded in 1448, the smell of the candles that lit the early darkness of October, the boys' choir in robes, and the very formal liturgy. But one part of Evensong caught me off guard. Every single night we sang Mary's Magnificat, Luke's Gospel for this week. Why did the daily liturgy assign her such prominence? Why was Mary so central to the daily Christian confession? In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, every Sunday morning we recited the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But practically speaking, Mary played no role at all in my Christian identity. Later, I learned that Protestants questioned dogmas about Mary that were codified quite recently and that don't enjoy clear biblical support in their view, like, like her perpetual virginity, her freedom from actual and original sin, immaculate conception, and the idea that she did not die but was taken directly to heaven, her bodily assumption. We Protestants also get agitated about exalted language that sounds like Mary is a co-redeemer of humanity. And finally, in popular devotion, the cult of Mary can drift into excess and superstition. For all these reasons, Protestants emphasize a distinction that both Catholic and Orthodox believers acknowledge that Christians honor or venerate Mary as the mother of God, but we don't worship her. Which worship is due to God alone? Nonetheless, you might argue that no woman has influenced Western history and culture more than Mary. Her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, 46-55 takes its name from the first word of the Latin text. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So, despite Protestant reservations, Mary remains central to our Christian confession, and that for four important reasons. First, Mary was a woman of exemplary faith. She was a peasant girl from a working-class neighborhood of carpenters in Nazareth, a village so insignificant that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, in the historian Josephus, or in the Jewish Talmud. In John 1.46, Nathaniel asks, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Mary's angelic encounter took place in an unknown, ordinary house, not the temple. When the angel Gabriel foretold the birth of her son Jesus, Mary responded in words of faith that have echoed through the centuries. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Her bold belief startled her pregnant cousin Elizabeth who exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed is she who believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Catholics remind us of another Marian truth that's easy to overlook, but nonetheless stupendous. In some mysterious way, the Incarnation resulted not only from the work of God the Father, but also from the will of the Mother Mary. Numerous Church Fathers acknowledged Mary's active cooperation in the history of salvation. According to Aquinas, <clears throat> human redemption depended upon the consent of the pregnant teenager Mary. She didn't ask to bear the Son of God, nor was she compelled to do so. She might have said no, or, like Zechariah, responded to Gabriel's staggering annunciation in disbelief. <clears throat> but she didn't shrink from God's call on her life, and instead enriched all humanity by her willing participation in her obedient submission. Third, Mary was also a woman of prophetic pronouncement. Her Magnificat moves from the deeply personal to the explicitly political. God, Mary proclaims, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. This peasant girl, who a few months later would bear the Son of God, then praises God the Mighty One, because he has, quote, brought down rulers from their thrones, 
but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent away the rich empty-handed. I wonder what Herod or Tiberius thought if they heard her words. The incarnation of the Son of God, Mary announced, meant the inversion of conventional wisdom, dethroning political power, plundering rich people, and redistributing food supplies signaled a new age in a new order. And finally, Eastern Orthodox believers emphasized that because the Son of Mary was the Son of God, God made flesh, we honor her with the technical term Theotokos, literally bearer of God, God-bearer. In his poem, The Annunciation, John Donne thus marvels, Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin, <clears throat> yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. This term, Theotokos, bestowed upon Mary by church fathers since the third century, acknowledges her special role in redemption. She is nothing less than the mother of God. When the term gained official status at the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, the intent was to emphasize the full divinity of the Son more than the privileged status of his mother. Mary did not give birth to a mere man, she bore a child who was fully divine. If you wonder why Catholics and the Orthodox refer to Mary as the Blessed Virgin, consider the Gospel of Luke for this week. Blessed are you among women, said Elizabeth. From now on, all generations shall call me blessed, acknowledged Mary. Veneration of the Mother of God leads to exaltation of the Son of God, which is precisely the message of Christmas in the words of Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior.
For books this week, I review a title called Eleven Rings, The Soul of Success. The author is Phil Jackson. New York Penguin Press, 2013, 356 pages. You can make a good argument that Phil Jackson is the best coach ever in the history of the NBA. His winnage percentage of 704 is the highest of any coach. And as the title of the book suggests, his 11 NBA titles are also the most by any coach. He won six NBA titles as coach of the Chicago Bulls from 1989 to 1998, then five more with the Los Angeles Lakers from 2000 to 2010. And oh, by the way, as a player, he was an NBA champion in 1970 and 1973 with the New York Knicks. Sure, with the Bulls, Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And with the LA Lakers, he had Shaq and Kobe. But here's where it gets interesting. As you read Jackson's book, you realize just how hard winning any championship is, much less 11. There are the massive amounts of money, ego, and media. Players and coaches are also normal human beings with personal problems. In basketball, there's the mysterious alchemy of the physical, the psychological, and, for Phil Jackson, the explicitly spiritual. Phil Jackson grew up in rural Montana in North Dakota. Both of his parents were Pentecostal pastors. He attended University of North Dakota. Jackson is well known for his deep commitment to a Zen spirituality. In his book, he's just as likely to quote a 13th century Buddhist scholar as a player or coach. Every year, he gives every player a carefully selected book to help him grow not only as a player, but as a person. Team meetings often begin with a meditation circle to cultivate mindfulness. Chapter after chapter explores not just the championship seasons, but how, how you transform a team of selfish individuals into selfless teammates with a common goal. To quote the title of one of his previous books, it's more than a game. And thus, Jackson's Zen-like final sentence in this book, which is the subtitle, The Soul of Success is Surrendering to What It Is. Phil Jackson, Eleven Rings, The Soul of Success. For movies this week, I review a film from France. It's called The Intouchables from 2011. <clears throat> this comedy drama tells the true-life story of the unlikely friendship between a Parisian aristocrat named Philippe Pozo de Borgo and his French-Algerian caregiver, Abdel Salou. 
It won numerous film prizes and became the most watched movie ever in France. In the fictional film version, the quadriplegic Philippe hires a Senegalese immigrant named Driss to care for him, even though he's an ex-criminal and a scammer who only wants government welfare. Their unlikely friendship changes them both. The wealthy and urbane Philippe introduces Driss to painting, opera, literature, and private jets. For his part, the African drift adds some soul to Philippe's narrow life. The movie is in French with English subtitles. I watched it on Netflix streaming. The Intouchables, the most watched movie ever in France. And finally, for the third Sunday in Advent, we've posted another poem by John Donne called Nativity. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leads his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent weak enough now into the world to come. But, oh, for thee, for him, hath the inn no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. Nativity by John Donne Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 15th, 2013, the third Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.